Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having fun sharing with you. But before I begin this episode, I wanted to remind everyone of a couple of things. First is to note that if you're interested in purchasing my or my colleague Rory Mackay's Algonquin Human History books, they can be found in person at the Friends of Algonquin bookstores or through their online virtual store. My books can also be found on Amazon both in Canada and around the world. Now, of course, if you'd like a signed copy, please feel free to drop me a line at clemsong at algonquinparkheritage.com. If you'd rather have an Algonquin Defining Moments t-shirt or coffee cup or other swag, check out my website www.algonquinparkheritage.com or www.redbubble.com. I'd also like to remind everyone that the Wildlife Research Station is not a government agency and relies on user fees and donations. Please feel free to visit algonquinwrs.ca to learn more and offer your support for their ongoing work in environmental research, teaching, and education. My research and reading for these episodes on wolves in Algonquin Park has been extensive, and I've tried to be as dispassionate and even-handed as I can. With that in mind, I've found that in many cases the researchers' own words are far better than my own. So I have paraphrased extensively from John and Mary Theberge's book, Wolf Country, and from the 2004 monogram that they wrote, which was published with the University of Waterloo. John and Mary will be guests on the show in a few weeks to share some of their perspectives on the future of wolves. But in the meantime, there's an extensive list of references in the show notes on my Algonquin Defining Moments show site on www.podbean.com. In the last episode, I focused on explaining the kind of research that John and Mary Thibers conducted and some of its key results. In this episode, I'm going to focus on their uncovering of the extent of the Algonquin Park deer migration and the collective freakout that this caused amongst the people of the Round Lake area, ministry officials, the Thibers themselves, and eventually the general public of wolf lovers and protectors. In the late 1980s, awareness that deer were migrating to the Round Lake area just outside the southeastern boundary of Algonquin Park had been known to researchers for a while. The area is composed 80% of mixed forest, 15% agricultural fields, and 5% town sites and roads. It includes the towns of Barry's Bay, Wilno, Round Lake Center, Bonisher, and Killaloo. The then theory was that the deer were seeking winter shelter, and the shallow snow provided by the area's lowland conifers provided an ideal location to spend the winter. You know, like the Canadian snowbirds migrating to Arizona and Florida to avoid Canadian winters. This approximately 150 square kilometer area was attractive to deer because of lower snow depth, as already discussed, lots of pine plantations, cedar swamps, and for some years artificial feeding by locals and the Ministry of Natural Resources staff. Some of the deer continued on another 10 kilometers to farmlands near the village of Germanicus, and a small number migrated from the northeast corner of the park to the vicinity of the town of Petawawa, 
It wasn't until 1990 when student Lee Swanson started her master's research into assessing what kinds of environmental stimuli might be triggering this annual migration. The thinking at the time was that any wolves involved were likely random dispersers and not associated with any packs. Never in anyone's mind at the time was there a connection to wolf pack movements. All of that changed in the spring of 1991. Team Tiberge's study was now in its third winter, and grad student Graham Forbes was conducting his periodic telemetry survey. As mentioned previously, this involved flying in specific patterns across the park, identifying the location of the then-known radio-collared wolves. To his surprise, on his way back to Pembroke Airport whilst flying over the Round Lake area, his telemetry identified two missing wolves whose collars transmitted the signal that indicated they were dead, and a third, though still alive, was part of a pack that normally occupied a territory over 60 kilometers away in the center of the park. With renewed interest, the research teams paid more attention to this area just outside of the park boundaries. Alas, to the team's horror and dismay, by the end of March 1991, 63% of 21 radio-collared wolves that were alive the previous summer had died. Now, a sample this size is usually a pretty decent representation of the entire population. This led researchers to guess that somewhere between 50 and 60 wolves from the eastern half of Algonquin Park had been killed that spring. This seemed to be as a result of movement from their territories to the farmlands near Round Lake. Almost half had been killed by humans in the area. Now, as a reminder, I've mentioned in previous episodes in the late 1960s, deer density was close to 10 times what it was in the 1990s. The 1975 Master Plan for Algonquin Park had estimated that at that time there were 10 known deer wintering areas to which deer would migrate. In the late 1970s, early 80s, heavy snowfall, lack of suitable conifer cover, and less early successional forests caused the deer population to collapse. In response, the Ministry of Natural Resources started distributing hay to landowners in the Round Lake area. This resulted in more migration to the Round Lake area, and to no one's surprise, the concentration must have been enough that the wolves noticed. Later speculation was that so many deer had died in the 70s that the location of the 10 in-park deer yards was forgotten. Lee Swanson's work showed that browse availability and cover were more favorable in the traditional in-park deer yards than at Round Lake. This suggested that it was the tradition of using the Round Lake yard rather than habitat quality that might have been the driving factor to the deer movements. In order to investigate this deer migration theory, Thiberge's teams set up various locations along known deer trails into the Round Lake area and were able to visibly watch when, on December 5, 1991, the nighttime temperature fell to minus 26 degrees Celsius. The deer came pouring out of the park. Later research showed that the primary trigger was the temperature dropping below minus 25 degrees C and a sharp increase in weekly air chill 
there was no evidence of any kind of starvation or lack of food availability. Best estimates were that over 1,800 deer descended onto the Round Lake area. As the deer left the park, there was lots of wolf cross-territory trespassing, and by mid-January, members being tracked from five packs had come down to the deer yard. By mid-March, they all had returned home. The next winter was worse. 55% of the collared wolf population died, all but one to human killing. Estimates made suggested that between 1988 and 1993, the wolf population on the east side of the park had dropped 43%. Five entire packs had been completely obliterated. Now, with an estimated total of only 10 to 12 packs, this was a significant loss. Over the next few years, it was noted that the human deer kill rates varied based on when the migration happened. If it was early, they were affected by the November rifle and the December archery hunts. If the deer migrated after December 31st, they were impacted by neither. Moose population declined for two years post-1991, but then recovered, perhaps due to more young being born or perhaps due to habitat improvement due to the logging in the area. The shocking real and estimated losses to the Algonquin small wolf population horrified everyone involved in the research. Unfortunately, initial attempts to follow the rules and raise the issues to park officials quietly were met with not just disdain and appeasement, but aggressive harassment. As the Thebergias wrote in Wolf Country, quote, we were put on notice that if we didn't stop causing the MNR trouble, the funding for our research would be cut and that it later became apparent that a strategy of covert harassment to try to get something on us and close us down had been instituted. Now, most of the Thebergia's funding came from the World Wildlife Fund Canada, with some coming from a government-funded program for university research called the Ontario Renewable Resource Research Grant. It was this latter source of funding that MNR was threatening. Now, I've always naively hoped that these types of confrontations between researchers and government officials were rare, but apparently they were, according to Thaberge, often, quote, discussed and joked about in a bitter way in university faculty lounges across the continent. They represented government's usual reaction to those whose research points to needed but politically difficult changes in policy. The playbook is unfortunately well known. In the first act, Research objectives are questioned and criticized as either not worthwhile or not justifying the funding. In the next act, researchers typically find themselves faced with a mountain of administrative trivia, followed by threats of closure for non-compliance over a host of minor logistics procedures. The third act features efforts to refute research findings by raising technical issues related to sample size, research design, and related topics. The last act involves attempts to discredit the researchers themselves. By the summer of 1992, it became clear that like Douglas Pimlot before them, generating public interest rather than attempting to reason with MNR officials was going to be the only way to affect change. Now it's important to realize that not all of the MNR officials felt this way. One, who was then the district manager, was really clear with his position. As the Bears wrote in Wolf Country, Remarks from him found in a leaked memo stated, quote, We support in principle that society should not be hunting down and killing 
an excessive number of wolves due to cultural or social bias. Unfortunately, some at the most senior levels didn't agree. One, the then Toronto-based chief of wildlife, believed and documented, based on inputs from some of his key biologists, that additional protection wasn't necessary. These officials collectively ignored all the then-known evidence found in scientific literature. This literature suggested that such levels of annual mortality were clearly not sustainable. Wolves, they said, had been migrating out of the park for years, and the population had managed to survive, ignoring, of course, all of Pimlot's conclusions to the contrary. They faulted the Thaberge's research methodology, suggesting that they hadn't documented a decline in the wolf population at all. But more shockingly, and I know this is with 2022 sensibility, which isn't fair, suggested that it didn't matter if park wolves were killed by humans, because a certain number had to die anyway. There was no interest in considering the impact of the fractured wolf social system that was being captured, live and living color, through this research. Having watched and learned from Himlot's lack of success in trying to shift government policy from within, and great success in launching a public campaign in support of Algonquin wildlands, the Thabarishes decided it was time to go public. In September 1992, with their encouragement, the World Wildlife Fund Canada sent out a press release that, quote, called for an upgrade of Ontario's provincial wolf conservation policies, as Ontario still allowed wolves to be killed all year round with no limit and with no reporting of the numbers killed, unquote. The press release got a flurry of media attention, but not a flood. The funny thing is that in March 1993, just as the Berges were about to launch a second phase of a public campaign, M&R did an about-face and proposed the, quote, closure to wolf hunting and trapping in Round Lake areas Higgerty, Richard, and Burns townships from December 15th to March 31st, unquote. This, they said, would be a good first step to better protect Algonquin Park wolves. This was a precedent-setting move. As the Berge wrote in Wolf Country, it was, quote, a huge precedent-setting success because up until that point, nowhere, certainly not in North America, had any government extended special protection for a park population of carnivores beyond park boundaries, unquote. Transboundary movement and killing was and is a global problem, not just for wolves, but also for wild dogs, lions, tigers, cheetahs, and grizzlies. MNR officials were, of course, aware that this move would, quote, upset some rural municipalities, but their view at the time was that, quote, for the most part, there's no farming bordering the park, the pelts have no value, and there is certainly no shortage of natural prey species for those wanting to hunt, unquote. Unfortunately, as the Thaberges wrote, quote, just the thought of wolves works an evil alchemy in the minds of some people that penetrates deeply into the psyche, locks on to hidden fears and frustrations, and magnifies emotion. Maybe sublimely we remember when the competition was more equal, ancient struggles before humans took command. Maybe because we don't condone overt racial discrimination, some people need something to master and condemn. Whatever the reason, the wolf-killing ban did not bring out the best in many people living in the Round Lake area. If the wolf holds up a mirror, 
what it reflected was ugly, unquote. The public discourse that followed at local meetings in the immediate area was indeed vitriolic and anger-filled, even one held in the basement of a Catholic church. One wishes that one could say that this was a unique situation, but unfortunately it isn't. As Thevers noted, quote, supporters of wolf conservation hear the same arguments against the wolf, the same refusals to obey the law, the same out-of-control anger. Just look at what recently happened in Yellowstone just a few months ago. As noted in a March 2022 Washington Post article, quote, in less than six months, hunters have shot and trapped 25 of Yellowstone's wolves, a record for one season. The majority killed in this part of Montana, just over the park border. The hunting has eliminated about one-fifth of the park's wolves, the most serious threat yet to a population that has been observed by tourists and studied by scientists more intensively than any in the world. Alas, the following winter was a mild one, when the ban was first to go into effect. In addition, there was a bumper crop of acorns. This meant that fewer deer felt compelled to migrate from the park, which of course triggered the local population to say rather loudly that the deer population had crashed and the wolf was to blame. Attempts to explain the facts elicited comments about bleeding-heart environmentalists and what seemed now to be fantastical claims, such as the unfounded idea that there was now, quote, increased danger to human safety, unquote. Others ranted a belief that soon there would be no more deer, and even one local doctor, a longtime anti-wolf advocate, tried to explain as fact that, quote, a timber wolf in captivity will devour one deer a week, unquote. This idea also had no basis in scientific fact and was actually a metabolic impossibility, which you would have thought he would have known being a medical doctor. Things finally came to a head in mid-March 1994 when a local resident in the Round Lake area killed one of the wolves collared the previous summer. His severed head, complete with his radio collar, was mounted on a telephone pole at the main intersection at Round Lake Center, just across from the church. Below his head, which was mounted on a board, was printed in large letters, Do not dare us. The barbarism and sadistic impression of the Round Lake residents that this left in the public sphere seemed to have shocked the community. Maybe it even forced them to take stock, or at least one hopes that it did. Now, this was long before Twitter and Facebook, which likely would have taken the whole thing viral. On the surface, this seemed to be true. Press coverage declined and acceptance of wolves seemed to grow over time. One likes to think that something had happened to the psyche of the community. Of course, over time, it became clear that the facts supported the reality that there were still deer in the hills, no livestock had been lost, and no humans endangered. The Thaberge's view was that what the wolf issue did was force people to face themselves. I'm not so sure. I suspect that the hatred has just gone underground, as was apparent when one of the wolves that researchers were tracking was found dead near the fence line of one of Round Lake's alleged most bitter critics. There was, as was reported, quote, no blood, no obvious injury, no human track, no signs of struggle, 
just a face that wore the contorted death mask of pain researchers were used to seeing on wolves who had strangled in snares. Later, the University of Michigan toxicology lab diagnosed that the wolf had died of strychnine poisoning. As the Thaberges had gone on to write, even though the winter hunting ban reduced proactive wolf killing, wolves continued to die in just enough numbers to keep disrupting continuity and erasing gains. Mortality was 36% in 1996-97, and the population of their entire study area declined again by 28%. Human killing outside of the ban area accounted for 75% of these losses. For example, the Basin Depot Pack struggled with low life expectancy, dispersal exceeding immigration in the Bonisher Valley, and low numbers of pups making it to yearling age. In the Petawawa drainage area, the territory took two years to refill, and north of Grand Lake it took three. Just when the landscape seemed mended and the population had patched most of its holes, new ones appeared. As the wolves resettled the Algonquin land, the struggling occupants carved out largely different territories than those held by their predecessors, making it obvious that topography did not define boundaries. Unquote. Unfortunately, as later research would prove, and the Thabergias wrote so emphatically, quote, a fractured wolf society is memory impaired, order attenuated adrift, like a hockey team, that has traded its veterans and fired its coach. What remains is only what has been coded in genes, still the essence of the species in its way of doing things, but without the same synergy, cohesion, or breadth of learned skills. Over the following years, on ten different occasions, entire packs disappeared over a period of days or weeks, often corresponding with human killing. Three territories were reoccupied within the same year by different wolves. The rest were vacant for one or more years. As the Thabergias wrote, quote, death of an entire pack within a few days or weeks is rare in nature, so must be inferred as a human-induced artifact. The population seemed to be in complete disarray. Silence replaced wolf howls that normally reverberated from the dark hills as pack members sought each other for direction and solace. For the Thabergias and their researchers, the McDonald Creek area on the southeast of the park became a social wasteland for wolves. As they wrote, quote, The wolves were there, but our research showed that their movements were unpredictable, their alliances temporary, and associations with specific territory weak. Alone, wandering wolves weren't just dispersers, they were middle-aged, which implied something had gone wrong. One radio-collared female lost her entire pack one year and her new mate the next. Well, it turned out that first aid to the wolf-impaired McDonald Creeklands centered on, quote, one or two key wolves, possibly with survival skills or social skills or tenacity that exceeded others, unquote. In the case of McDonald Creek, it was a female, who for most of 1994 wandered. But in early 1995, she had pups with another wandering male, who the next year became her constant companion. Unfortunately, something must have happened again, as the two went from leading a pack of eight or nine, 
it became just them again by the summer of 1997. Another female was successful in stabilizing a pack around Jocko Lake, producing pups every year from 1994 until 1997. I think it's time for another wolf interlude. This is a track called Play Fight, and it's from Dan Gibson Solitude's Legend of the Wolf CD.
In 1997-98, the population remained low but seemed to be stable. Was it persisting? Yes. But was it healing? It was hard to say. But it was clear that boundary protection was going to be needed all around Algonquin Park, not just the three townships near the Round Lake area. As the Berge went on to write, quote, parks need to become places that provide ecosystem-sensitive levels of protection. An evolutionary irony, wolves are only partially adapted to shun humans. They would fare much better if the first hint of human presence triggered greater fear, if they always associated snowmobiles and cars with danger. But they hedge their bets and often lose. They don't need to leave the park. In the park's northwest sector, despite a near absence of deer year-round, the wolves have managed just fine. Their only adjustments are slightly larger territories and an increase in snowshoe hare in winter diets to about 10%. Yet, in the east, the wolves follow the deer out of the park, even though moose and beaver are just as abundant as in the west. Apparently, deer are so highly preferred a food source that the wolves were willing to risk exposure to people to follow them. This local deer storehouse was just too attractive for their predatory genes to ignore. Up to 58 wolves of our highest one-time estimate, or about 20 to 30 on average, concentrate in the 100 to 200 square kilometers of the Round Lake Deer Yard. This constitutes an unprecedented density of more than 20 times greater than in the park. What is also strange is that normal wolf spacing is temporarily on hold, and so is aggression. Never during the study period was a wolf-killed wolf in the deer yard recorded, unquote. This lack of aggression amongst the wolf packs as they concentrated in the Round Lake area each winter was confounding researchers. To try to resolve these questions, Joelle Cook studied wolf spatial tolerance and movements over five winters from 1990 to 1995. She found a high degree of tolerance, but there didn't seem to be any patterns. Packs appeared to avoid actually meeting or coming close to each other, nor did packs disintegrate. This may have been due to food abundance, a high degree of genetic relatedness amongst wolf packs, and high rates of human-caused mortality. Examining the data later, Ryan Norris revalidated this fact that packs were deliberately avoiding each other. Visiting packs to the deer yard occurred approximately 3.6 times during each winter and mean duration was 5.5 days, with the cumulative period over two winters lasting 26.4 days. The mean distance traveled was 29 kilometers. As she went on to write, quote, some wolves stayed in the deer yard and never returned to the park all winter. Others made up to eight return trips. When they returned, some went to the same area they had left. Other times they would center their activities elsewhere. Each winter a few didn't come to the deer yard at all. Some occupied only a few square kilometers in the deer yard. Others traveled much more widely." Unquote. Now some wolf movements were random, others were clumped, others were scattered. Single wolves without packs wandered everywhere. Now some unpredictability was expected given that there was not only no land to defend, but the deer themselves were moving around in response to snow conditions, food availability, and human activity that they wanted to avoid. For the wolves, 
There were individual differences in experience, memory, social position, age, and pack size that affected their success, but there was also this determined effort to avoid each other. Predation rates didn't indicate any excess killing, with on average packs of four to six wolves appearing to kill a deer every four to six days. Now this was somewhat more than the three-day cycle time that Pimlot calculated in the 1960s. Kill consumption took on average 18 to 32 hours, during which the wolves typically stayed close to their carcass. Now this could well have been as a result of concern about losing it to other wolves. Another interesting research fact was that researchers found no underutilized carcasses, which suggests that deer were not so abundant and easy to obtain that the situation overcame the biological taboo on overkilling. Interestingly enough, even though the deer knew that each winter two to three wolf packs always positioned themselves on the main deer runways leading to the Round Lake Yard, it didn't stop their migration. They seemed to be willing to run the, quote, wolf gauntlet no matter what. Research by Duarte Potzig from the University of Marlborough showed that most deer were killed by wolves in areas with the highest deer concentration, even in yards, where the deer were scattered mostly in small groups of twos or threes over many square kilometers. Guestimates at the time were that around 6 to 8 percent of the estimated park deer herd was killed by wolves during the winter migration and during the time spent in the deer yard. Another 10 to 12 percent was killed during the rest of the year. This combined total is significant but not excessive, as Ontario-wide estimates are that about 35% of the resident populations of deer were being killed each year at that time. More interestingly was the fact that when the researchers graphed changes in wolf numbers over the years, they showed no relation to changes in deer numbers. And also interestingly was data that showed that, quote, the earlier the deer migrated, the lower their numbers the following summer. Having ruled out malnutrition, that left only hunting by humans, and to this there was an obvious relationship." Unquote. Research also suggested that deer in yards did not obtain any significant anti-predator benefit from yarding, but because of reduced search time by wolves, may have been more vulnerable individually. In other words, natural selection while working to the advantage of the individual can sometimes work to the disadvantage of the population or even the species. In the end, after the three-township ban was initiated in 1993, though killings in those townships decreased, killings in the other areas generally compensated for the decrease, especially adjacent in the northeast corner of the park. The ban was considered necessary but not sufficient to arrest the decline. Most shooting occurred in the fall and most snaring mid to late winter. The average percentage of the population killed exceeded estimates of yearly killing by rangers from the worst of the decades of 1949 to 1959. So to what conclusions did all this research lead? Well, as the Berges wrote, Welfare and biological success of an individual depends not only on its favorable qualities, skills, and physical characteristics, but also on the combination of these traits exhibited by its fellow pack members as a group. This refers to things like their success in mate selection, 
in rearing young, in finding and killing prey, and maintaining a territory against interpack competition. A minimal viable wolf population requires a land area of about the size of the entire Algonquin Park. This amount of land can support a population of about 150 animals with at least 50 randomly mating breeders. At this scale of a few thousand kilometers, the wolf has the ability to both stabilize or destabilize ecosystems, dampening prey eruptions or limiting the size of prey populations when it drives system change, easing off its impacts to insignificance when it rides the system bottom up. Though all of this is true in theory, in Algonquin, the Thaparishes concluded that the wolf is largely responding to way more fundamental changes made by logging and wildlife exploitation for them to play any major role by themselves in changing prey numbers. As well, both Algonquin wolves and their deer, moose, beaver prey are on or near their range edges, which, where like most species, environmental conditions are more variable and significant than species interrelationships. I hope you've enjoyed this exploration of the wolf research conducted by John and Mary Thaberge in the late 1980s and 90s. In the next episode, I'll share what's happened since then in another interesting chapter in the world of the Algonquin Park Wolf. Dr. John Benson, Assistant Professor of Vertebrate Ecology at the University of Nebraska School of Natural Resources, who worked out of the Wildlife Research Center from 2007 to 2013 whilst working on his Ph.D., through Trent University, will join me. But before I close my discussion of this difficult time in Algonquin wolf lives, I want to address and make sure all have the facts at hand about a myth that I see keeps surfacing from time to time. This is a myth that humans have been preyed upon by wolves in Algonquin Park. As mentioned in the conclusion of the last episode, wolves do not consider men as prey. But... As Pimlot wrote so long ago, quote, wolves do have a tremendous ability to read signs and instinctively recognize aggression, fear, and other qualities of mind which are evidenced in subtle ways by our expressions and actions. For example, stalking deliberately, moving through woods and streams deliberately, all of which suggest they view us as superior predators, not prey. They are also subliminal characteristics of the human mind that also influence wolf behavior, in the same way that dogs are able to anticipate human behavior. Unquote. With this in mind, here are the facts about four events with negative outcomes that have happened during the time of the Farish's research in Algonquin Park, as reported in the Raven newsletter in 1999. The first incident happened in 1987. A 16-year-old girl was briefly seized on the arm at Whitefish Group Campground, leaving two slight scratches after she shone a flashlight in the wolf's eyes from very close range. It was interpreted as a disciplinary or annoyance reaction, similar to behavior a wolf might show to a lower-ranked pack member. The second incident occurred in August 1994 when another fearless wolf in the Big Crow Apiango Lavier Dixon area seemed uninterested in food but growled at people, tore up camping gear on several occasions, and on two different occasions, about a month apart, bit two people. 
The third incident occurred in August of 1996. A family of five from the United States, two adults with three children aged 3, 7, and 12, were canoe tripping, and they chose to sleep in sleeping bags outside of their tent on Tom Thompson Lake. At about 2 a.m., a wolf seized the head of the sleeping 12-year-old and dragged him an estimated seven feet before being driven off by the boy's father. The boy had a broken nose and six lacerations to the lower face. These injuries were not life-threatening, but one wound was deep enough to require plastic surgery at Sick Children's Hospital in Toronto. In addition, the sleeping bag near its opening had two almost parallel tears about three centimeters apart and approximately five centimeters long. The wolf had previously been seen on numerous occasions during the previous 12 days at different campsites on Tom Thompson and nearby Little Doe and McIntosh Lakes. On some of those occasions, it seized loose articles of clothing or camping gear, but did not seem aggressive towards people. One incident involved another man sleeping outside his tent, and his pillow, full of his change of clothes, was pulled out from under his head. And in another incident, a wolf shredded the contents of their tent and a canvas backpack that had been suspended four feet above the ground. A few days later, after the Tom Thompson Lake incident, a 58-pound adult male wolf was shot by park officials. It was apparently healthy and quite normal in appearance for an Algonquin Park wolf. Further pathological examination at the University of Guelph and Agriculture Canada showed no symptoms of rabies or any other obvious disease that might have accounted for this animal's behavior. It was the first wolf-human incident in the history of the park that resulted in significant human injury. At the time, there were three plausible theories presented as to why this last incident occurred. The first was that maybe it wasn't really a wild wolf. Maybe it had been raised in captivity and then dropped off in the park by owners tired of caring for it, or admitting to defeat and trying to make it behave, and hoped naively that it would return to the wild. The problem with this theory was that in every recognizable way, this wolf appeared to be a normal and distinctive Algonquin wolf. The second theory was that maybe the wolf was just illustrating scavenging behavior. The evidence presented was that two other parallel tears in the sleeping bag had no evidence of blood near them. This was consistent with tears made by wolf canines when pulling on a bag as seen done by captive wolves. The third theory was that maybe the bite was an accident. The general view at the time was that the wolf was trying to pull the sleeping bag away, not realizing that there was a boy in it until it seized the boy's face. It's not unprecedented for wolves to try to remove objects under the heads of sleeping humans, as relayed in, quote, Tales of the Wolf, unquote, by D. Casey and T.W. Clark, who collected stories about frontier-era wolf-human encounters. In the end, Officials felt it was more accidental than anything else. Two years later, in September 1998, the fourth incident happened, this time at Lake of Two Rivers Campground. This fearless wolf had been hanging around all summer in the Mew Lake, Lake of Two Rivers area. It was seen almost every day. Sightings that were reported at the Visitor Center Lobby Wildlife Sightings Board at one point, at the Lake of Two Rivers airfield, four students from the Wildlife Research Station reported seeing a wolf that imitated their actions of slowly approaching to within a few meters and then jumping away, 
before starting all over again. The students interacted with it for 40 minutes, describing it as cautious and curious, never frightened, and never threatening. On Friday, September 25th, this wolf started tracking a couple walking along a path in the Lake of Two Rivers campground. With them was their four-year-old daughter. The wolf appeared from behind, seemingly keying in on and wanting to get to their daughter. Even after being sprayed with pepper spray, it persisted until they entered a nearby trailer, at which point it abruptly lost interest and trotted away. On Sunday, on Sunday September 27th, the same wolf emerged from shrubs on the riverside of the lake of Two Rivers Campground onto a campsite occupied by a young family who were packing up to go home. Their 19-month-old son Daniel was sitting on the ground in the middle of the campsite playing with a yellow truck. He was about six meters from his parents. The father watched the wolf walk along the edge of his site, but then, not thinking it was anything particularly special, turned his attention back to packing up. A second or two later, he looked up to see the wolf had returned and had seized Daniel by the ribcage, and he saw it toss his son three feet to one side. His mother immediately scooped Daniel up and then got up on the site's picnic table, as did Daniel's older sister. The father yelled at the wolf. Other neighbors joined, who all helped in confronting the wolf and persuaded it to leave. Daniel suffered several puncture wounds on his chest and back. At Huntsville Hospital, he needed a couple of stitches for the worst puncture wounds. The wolf then proceeded west through the Mew Lake campground and then lay down in the boggy area at the west end of Mew Lake. Within an hour, it was sighted by park staff and dispatched soon after. The 66-pound wolf tested negative for rabies and, like the others, showed nothing abnormal when other pathology tests were conducted by the University of Guelph. A Trent University test showed that it had a DNA profile typical of local wolves. Unfortunately, there are no definitive answers except that fearless wolves should be treated with utmost caution like any other wild animal. This brings to mind a recent story from Yellowstone, where a woman looking for a prime selfie got too close to a wild bison and got herself gored and tossed ten feet in the air. Luckily, the puncture wounds sustained weren't life-threatening, and hopefully a useful lesson was learned. As John and Mary Thibere shared when they collared their first Algonquin wolf, Nama One. Burning an amber wolf's eyes is the vital force of wilderness itself, a force that left our eyes some 4,000 years ago as human civilization began to separate man from nature. Burning in those eyes, too, are deep and unsettling questions. They are about the capacity to hate another species, about persecution and population genocide. They ask what kind of future we are creating for wolves and wilderness. They make us ashamed and bring tears to our eyes. It has been said that wolf eyes are mirrors. What different people see in them is simply a reflection of themselves. Could they reflect even more, not just a person's attitude towards wolves, but towards the environment, wild lands, and nature itself? I do hope you've enjoyed this episode and look forward to sharing more about wolf research in my next episode. As I mentioned previously, Dr. John Benson will be joining me to talk about what he was working on from 2007 to 2013. Until next time.